Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted April 28th, 2022, titled, The Case for Heaven is Dismissed, Lee Strobel Response. Hi, everyone. Hi, Lee Strobel. I am so excited for you to see our new documentary, The Case for Heaven, based on my book by that title. Both the book and the film take you on my 18-month investigation into the evidence for the afterlife, for heaven and for hell. A movie about evidence for afterlife? Heaven and hell? Excellent. Am I going to walk away convinced? You're going to walk away encouraged. Okay, but am I going to walk away convinced? You're going to walk away excited. I guess I'll take that as a no. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. We've spent a lot of time on this channel investigating the former investigative journalist, Lee Strobel, as he remains one of the most prolific and influential personalities in evangelical Christianity to this day. Lee first hit the big screen in the movie God's Not Dead 2, and then his life was dramatized in the movie Case for Christ, which I've reviewed here before. I was initially encouraged that his latest outing, The Case for Heaven, would be a documentary format, thinking that the film would focus more on evidence and lean less on Lee's personal testimony. Boy, oh boy, that did not turn out to be the case. I counted the minutes, and over 20% of the movie screen time is entirely a Lee Strobel life story vanity project. We start with Lee reminiscing with his wife about the scary time he had a health incident. I remember opening my eyes and kind of trying to figure out where I was and then hearing him say, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. I think back at that time period, that was where I started to really consider losing you. Lee visits his childhood home to tell us his dad wasn't openly loving. And he said words that uh, I hope he didn't mean, but told me they didn't have enough love for me to fill his little finger. Lee reminisces about meeting his wife. Did you know at 14 she'd be the one? She went home and told her mom I met the boy in America. Lee visits his former workplace to remind us he was a big shot. By the end of my first week at the Tribune, I had a front page byline. Um, that sort of established my credibility, and it showed that I made something of myself, that I was successful. Lee reminds us that he wasn't very nice in his so-called atheist days. Her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Was he going to be drunk again? Lee reminds us of his wife's conversion that non-surprisingly led to his own. And then um, one day she came up to me and gave me the worst news that an atheist could get. She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And Lee even drives out to the desert to speculate on whether his brother is in hell now. My brother was an atheist, an outspoken atheist, his, virtually his entire life. Um, and he died not long ago, right at the beginning of the COVID crisis. I don't know what happened in that day. I hope he reached out to God. But I don't know. I'll find out someday in heaven. Maybe Lee's brother is being tortured for eternity. Maybe not. Oh, well, guess he'll find out someday. For now, let's just drive off into the sunrise like it's a scene from Top Gun. 
if I were making the trailer for this movie, it'd look a little like this. Lee Strobel was a big-time reporter and filthy atheist, but he set out to prove heaven is real by standing sideways on the beach, in a park, by a creek, in Chicago, in a church, in the desert, in the dark. Where is heaven? It's over there somewhere, just off frame. None of these 18 minutes in any way attempt to provide evidence for heaven. At best, they're merely an emotional appeal to manipulate the audience into taking Lee's unsupported assertions more uncritically than they ought. At worst, this is an extended ad for the entire Lee Strobel brand, an extensive line of Lee Strobel products. No different than a sci-fi movie made to sell toys. Or maybe the emotional priming is worse than the commercialization. Close call. Speaking of emotional priming, this movie leans very heavily on stretches of stirring music. The subtitle file, representing a transcript of the actual dialogue for this two-hour film, is shorter than what I typically see for a 45-minute YouTube video. It's almost like the participants know the music is more convincing than the words. I was just really moved by the experience of what was happening and there was more going on than just the music. There was something else that really was moving me on, on quite a deep level. And I'm trying to tell him about the, the sound and the, the ambiance of the room and the, the, um, the crowd and, and, and the, the songs, which songs were played. And at the end, it was so far, I, at the end I said, well, you just had to be there. Nearly every interviewee was framed in the context of music even creating music on screen. Uh, my musical education was very much in like worship teams and being a worship leader and that kind of thing. And I ended up joining this band, Hawk Nelson. Yep, that's who you think it is. But we'll come back to our friend John. The exact connection between music and actual evidence for heaven remained as unclear to the audience as it was to Strobel himself. And I was like, hey, Lee, I want to do something at a studio. What was your first impression? Well, I didn't know what to expect. I, I, you know, entering into your thinking process is yes. always an adventure. Yes. And so I just kind of went along for the ride. Though this theme did facilitate what I thought was the coolest moment of the film, which was, no disrespect to John. So close your eyes for a minute and listen to the sound. What do you hear there? It's actually samples of outer space. So there's sounds coming from quasars and, and the solar system and planets and things like that, that through equipment can actually be translated into sound. Of course, in no way did anyone attempt to elucidate as to how space sounds lend evidence for a heavenly afterlife. But in fairness, very few segments made a case for heaven. It opened with fear of death. Our fear of death, as some experts say, drives all of culture. Of course, this isn't true of everyone. And, uh, I said, are you, are you afraid of death? He said, no, I'm not. There's so much of me that's like, oh, I can't wait to die. I can't wait to get out of here. And even as a trend is entirely unrelated to the existence of heaven. If anything, it demonstrates humanity's general lack of confidence in heaven. 
there was talk of misplaced quests for immortality. Only three students have ever said, I know the first names of my great-great-grandparents. And then I ask this follow-up question. I'll say, do you care? Nobody cares. The Columbine killers. Uh, the day before they went on this murderous spree at that high school, uh, were talking about which director is going to direct the movie about our life. A desire to be remembered tells us nothing about the existence of heaven. There were complaints about uncomfortable philosophical consequences. If we're just a meat computer, we don't really have free will. How do you punish someone for doing something illegal if there's no free will? He, he didn't have a choice. Punishment as deterrent, or to compensate loss, makes perfect sense even for people without free will, since responsibility isn't tied to motive. And awareness of potential consequences is one of the inputs that determines our deterministic decisions. Purely retributive punishments would make less sense. But I'm not necessarily an advocate of revenge justice in the first place. This segment was perhaps to set up justification for damning people to hell. But even if it had definitively established full-on libertarian free will, nothing about the existence of heaven would have been learned. Speaking of hell, there was a segment of Lee speaking of hell. Hell is not a torture chamber. Torture is imposed from without. Hell is more about torment, where it comes from within. But speculation about what hell might be like is something fun to do after establishing that it exists. That was supposed to be the point of this documentary, wasn't it? I want to reach a verdict in the case for heaven based on the evidence and not on my wishful thinking. All the same, the film presents wishful thinking about heaven. The greatest experience on earth is, is just like a tiny taste compared to the feast that I believe God has prepared for us. Because the color spectrum of Earth is the color spectrum of the sun, but the color spectrum of heaven is the color spectrum of God. I mean, we actually only see a tiny fraction of the color spectrum from the sun. There are butterflies, scorpions, reindeer, birds, shrimp, and even goldfish that see more of the spectrum than we do. Maybe God could have started with that before promising more later. For some reason... The film gives us the life story of a professional skateboarder named Steve, whose long segment mentions heaven only once. I didn't really care whether I was going to heaven or hell, or even thought about it. He regales with a highly problematic tale of God reaching out for him. I just remember just having my eyes closed and then just hearing this voice in my head. Call my sister-in-law, Kathy, um, who's married to my brother, Eddie. Out of the blue, I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? Um, I'll tell you where you got that from, Steve. You got divorced, then had a long-term relationship that ended badly, which left you emotionally broken. I just really qu couldn't really understand being 40 years old and dealing with this drama relationship, and I'm hurt, you know? I'm sad. <laughs> What's sad? You know, I wanted something solid again. And what's more solid than family who sticks by you? And I had a feeling she was going to say that I need Jesus in my life because I was calling her for the answers. And so I was ready to hear it. So you felt like you wanted to hear about Jesus and you miraculously came up with the idea to call the family member you knew would tell you about Jesus. This is indeed amazing evidence for heaven. Almost as amazing as the story of Francis Chan, who appears in this documentary about heaven without once mentioning heaven. No, 
Chan is sad that his parents died. I would love to know what it feel like to have a mom that gave birth to me and loved me, and but I'll never have that. I, I'd love to have a, a dad right now and just wonder, what did he think of my life? But what if I told you that the Chinatown San Francisco ministry that Chan works for took over the same building as the Chinatown San Francisco ministry that his mom worked for. And so I thought, that is crazy that 60 years ago, uh, my mom was doing ministry in that exact same spot where God was calling me now. I lived in the Bay Area. Affordable ministry space is pretty rare. Doesn't seem crazy to me that one ministry would take over a lease for another. It's certainly not evidence for heaven. I'll spare you a tour of every non-sequitur scene. But before we jump into the shallow pool of evidence, let's take one last stop in the film's irrelevant finale. A celebration of Lee's friend, the late evangelist Louis Palau. You know, if I'm investigating heaven, wouldn't it be good to talk to someone who's about ready to go there? Why would that be good? Not to be indelicate, but Louis was still alive when you spoke to him. So that means he had no more first-hand knowledge about life after death than you or me or a random five-year-old. His speculations are no more poignant because he was temporally closer to passing. If there's a mystery painting behind a door, the person closest to the door has no greater insight as to what's on the canvas. Or if maybe there's really no painting at all. One subject of the documentary even has the audacity to express this on screen. I have absolutely no idea what happens after we die. Um, I haven't been there. <laughs> That's right. At the 44 minute mark, deep enough in to have established the tone, while still early enough that the audience can forget about it by the end, the documentary takes a 180 and dedicates seven minutes of screen time to friend of this channel and former Christian, John Steingard. Strobel may have been confident that John's dissenting viewpoints, included for a surprising hint of journalistic integrity, would be overshadowed, overwhelmed, and fully refuted by the rest of the film. But if you read the audience reviews of the film online, the inclusion of this segment was disturbing to many Christian viewers. For those paying careful attention, a lot of what John said directly counters the movie's case. I think as I was writing that stuff, it, for me, represented what I wanted to believe. You know, I wanted something solid again. If it doesn't exist somewhere, why would we long for something like that? And when you want to believe something really deeply, you have periods of time where you sort of can, right? Like, you sort of can believe that this is true and you... You have experiences. We have these conscious experiences because we're made by a God who is himself conscious. And you interpret them through that lens and you go like, oh yeah, like God does love me this much. And I had this experience and I kind of felt it. There was something else that really was moving me on, on quite a deep level. What was that? What is that? Every good thing that we experience on this earth, everything we love, first of all, God created it. That's why we love it. She came back from that experience uh, knowing that Jesus was God. You know, I, sometimes I think there's a trope that gets 
trotted out that like, oh, well, like people choose not to believe in God because they just want to go do some sinning. We want to live without God. We want to ignore God. We want to reject God. We want to live in a way that we know God would not approve of, so we don't want God to be part of our lives, and we shun him during our lifetime. Like, that was not me. I like, I really wanted to believe. You chose to be separate from me your entire life, and now you will be separated from me for eternity in hell. And the more I read and learned, the more I just found that it was difficult for me to believe. We'll come back to John's insights as we're about to finally get to the mere 30 minutes of the two-hour film that actually attempts to answer this question. Is there sufficient evidence to tell me that when I die, I will continue to live on? It's about time. So I want to look at what is the evidence that we have a soul, first of all, and then secondly, what evidence do we have that it can survive our physical death? Perhaps recognizing that solving the centuries-old debate about the nature of consciousness is above the pay grade of a puff piece documentary, the film chooses instead to merely assert. It's true that we have a brain uh, that's very important, but we also have a mind and we have this, there's something that it is to be us. There's something that it is like to be you that actually neurons alone can't completely explain. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. What categorically can't be explained? Each year, more is learned about the brain and the role of neurons and chemicals in driving thoughts and experiences. What is not gaining elucidation is how this proposed soul interacts with the physical brain that Dr. Sharon admits exists. If a metaphysical mind is interfacing with the brain, where are the physical brain functions that cannot be traced back to a physical cause? Some of them would have to trace back to a metaphysical cause. The good doctor seemed to really want to work in the word qualia. So she spent a bunch of time talking about the smell of coffee. If you want to understand the smell of coffee, you need to smell it. And this is an example of a quail in the singular or qualia in its plural. Life is full of qualia. um, And these things cannot be described in physical terms. And if you, with the confines of your personal mastery of the English language are inadequate at expressing with words every nuance of your every feeling stirred by coffee aroma, then heaven is real? If physical descriptions aren't enough, maybe the ultimate reason for that lies beyond the physical. And where I really kind of land with this is that, you know, we are conscious, we have these conscious experiences because we're made by a God who is himself conscious. What's the justification for that leap? This is a strange variant of the composition fallacy, or confirmation bias, because lions will kill cubs of other bloodlines to preserve their own bloodline. They were made by a god who himself kills other bloodlines to preserve his own bloodline. Because crocodiles will unnecessarily torture, they were made by a god who himself unnecessarily tortures. No, this is a very clear example of humans making god in their own image. Now, whether you've become convinced by these two bold assertions or not, that ended the philosophical and neuroscience portion of the film's argumentation. Everything else rests on... How do we know that consciousness survives clinical death? And that's when we get into near-death experiences. If you say so. But even as a Christian, I was skeptical about near-death experiences. Even as a Christian, uh, I I was skeptical about near-death experiences. I mean... Every time I find a case to research, it seems poorly documented and always much better explained by the strange things we know that brains do when they have oxygen deprivation, sensory deprivation, 
or are flooded with oxytocin, all of which happens during the distress of near death. But this is a big-budget theatrical release documentary, so I'm sure Lee went with the best-attested, most convincing examples in history to portray here. In order to show that we have a consciousness that survives our death, we just need one authentic, corroborated near-death experience. And we have a lot more than one of those examples. My favorite example is Pamela Reynolds. Perfect. A specific case we can dig into. Pam Reynolds. At the age of 35, she underwent a surgery that required the blood be drained from her brain, her eyes be taped shut, and have devices placed in her ears. And yet... She witnessed things that she had no way of knowing unless her consciousness somehow survived her clinical death. While Lee doesn't come out and say it, context asks the audience to infer that this must be because she has a soul separate from her brain. Unsurprisingly... Lee doesn't mention this 2005 paper by Dr. Christopher French of the University of London that presented the positions of other experts who examined Pam's case in detail, including Dr. Gerald Worley, an anesthesiologist of over 20 years' experience, who sees this event as nothing more than disturbingly common anesthesia awareness. She was conscious, she said, during that surgery. Sometimes the concentration of sleep-inducing drugs within the bodies of patients undergoing such a form of anesthesia is insufficient to maintain unconsciousness. So these people are awake. They hear what's going on around them. They feel the touch of the surgeon and others. And if their eyes are open, they actually see what's happening. But because of the powerful pain-killing drugs, they feel no pain. And because of the muscle-paralyzing drugs, they cannot move, speak, or breathe. They lie still and unmoving while observing all that happens to them and around them. Subsequently, after recovering the ability to speak, they can give very detailed reports of what happened to their bodies and about their bodies during their periods of awareness. This may sound amazing to some people, but everyone can test for themselves the quality of observations made by a person lying still with their eyes shut, lie blindfolded on a bed. In such a situation, you can quite clearly visualize what people are doing and saying in your immediate surroundings, as well as clearly visualize what is happening to your body. This is the situation in which Pam Reynolds found herself when she awoke at the beginning of her operation. Three tests showed that there was no measurable brain activity whatsoever. Some people also make much of the fact that the VEP monitoring did not signal that she was conscious. The truth about all monitoring, such as VEPs, is that while such monitoring is generally very accurate, it is not 100% accurate. This is realized and appreciated by all experienced anesthesiologists who understand and must work with this humbling fact. So they always keep a sharp eye on their patients for other signs of awakening. She had uh, devices inserted into her ears so that all she could hear was 100 decibels of sound, which is like a subway train going right next to you. Some authors make much of the fact that she could hear everything, in spite of the fact she had earplugs feeding clicking sounds into her ears. My reaction to this is, of course she could hear what happened about her. Proof of this is seen all about us. There are simply enormous numbers of people all around the world listening to loud music played through earplugs, who at the same time 
are able to hear and understand all that happens in their surroundings. And people under anesthesia can hear things. Otherwise, this perfectly standard VEP monitoring technique would be useless as a measure of the depth of anesthesia. So being able to hear, despite the insertion of earphones making clicking sounds, is nothing wondrous. And all the surgical instruments were shrouded uh, before the surgery began. She was able to recall specific details about the highly unusual instruments that were used during her surgery. Because she was born in 1956, a generation whose members almost invariably have had many fillings, Pam Reynolds almost certainly had fillings or other dental work, and would have been very familiar with the dental drills. So the high-frequency sound of the idling, air-driven motor of the pneumatic saw, together with the subsequent sensations of her skull being sawn open, would certainly have aroused imagery of apparatus, similar to dental drills in her mind, when she finally recounted her remembered sensations. She recalls specific conversations that took place while she was brain dead, while she was clinically dead. She remembers one person saying, uh, we have a problem, her arteries are too small. She was not on cardiac bypass at the time of her out-of-body experience because the cardiothoracic surgeon was having trouble introducing the cardiac bypass machine tubing into the blood vessels of her right groin. The blood vessels in her right groin were too small for the size of the tubing and the blood flow needed for cardiac bypass. This means the cardiac bypass apparatus was not even connected to her body at the time. The cardiothoracic surgeon eventually used the blood vessels in her left groin. So at that time, Pam Reynolds had a normal heartbeat and body temperature, as well as the normal responses of a paralyzed person who was awake while supposedly under general anesthesia. She described going through a tunnel, meeting dead relatives, coming back into her body. Her story is a product of her socio-cultural upbringing, her prior conscious and unconscious knowledge of the operation she was to undergo, her prior knowledge of all things medical, that which she consciously and unconsciously observed during her periods of awareness, the effects of anesthetic drugs, low body temperature, surgery, her anxieties, and finally, her personality. All these things were unconsciously combined and integrated into a coherent story of a wondrous experience. Mundane explanations abound, and yet this is Lee's favorite example. What's second best? The case of Heidi Barr. When I was 16, my horse reared back and fell on me and completely crushed my pelvis and my chest, and I died. I mean, she didn't. She had an accident, was unconscious, and then regained consciousness with no medical intervention. There's no documentation that she died. And then she sees a light over her shoulder, she said, and she turns, and there's Jesus. She fully wasn't expecting Jesus, and yet she said... I knew this was God, and he looked just like Jesus. And while Lee doesn't ask Heidi what Jesus looked like, other programs did. He, his hair's about my length. It's chestnut brown. He's got some streaks in it. It's wavy. He has a, a lean face with uh, kind of scruff, you know, beard and mustache, but not too long. He has beautiful mouth, a gorgeous smile. You can't look away from his smile. It's infectious. Um, his eyes radiate all the joy in the universe, and they are, and this was really hard for me to tell anyone at first, they are blue. They are the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. So you saw this Jesus. 
the Western culture depiction of Jesus. Since she was a little girl, she had always believed in God and had always prayed to God. I see. So, at best, Heidi had a moment of subconscious affirmation for which the only evidence is her own report. We just need one authentic, corroborated near-death experience. I hate to ask what your third best example is. And so we have a famous case of a woman who, um, who, who was clinically dead, and she describes how her soul separated from her body. When she came back into her body and was telling people about this, she said, by the way, while I was floating up there, on the third floor ledge of the hospital, there's a, a man's blue tennis shoe. Well, then they go up and they find, yes, here it is, exactly as she said. Okay, here we go. The 1977 case of Maria, as described to the world by her social worker, Kimberly Clark. In 1996, researchers Hayden Ebern and Sean Mulligan visited Seattle to interview Clark personally and visit Harborview Medical Center the location of this famous event. It seems Clark herself was the discoverer of the shoe, found not by exiting to the roof, as deceptively depicted in Lee's movie, but instead was spotted from inside by looking out of a patient window. Clark is the only witness to the details. The shoe was not photographed, no notes are known to have been taken, and the current whereabouts of this shoe of near-mythic status is also unknown. Ebern and Mulligan placed the shoe on the ledge Clark identified and found it to be plainly visible from the ground and also clearly visible from multiple interior vantage points. Per the researchers, it is not a far-fetched notion to assume that anyone who might have noticed the shoe back in 1977 would have commented on it because of the novelty of its location. Thus, during the three days prior to her NDE, Maria could have overheard such a conversation among any of the doctors, nurses, patients, visitors, or other hospital staff who frequented this busy area. Memory researchers are well aware that people can hear snippets of conversation outside of their focal awareness and recall the contents in various forms, including visual images, even though they honestly believe they never encountered the information before. This is known as cryptomnesia. Kimberly Clark is not a trained investigator, and she did not publicly report the details of Maria's NDE until seven years after it occurred. It is quite possible that during this interval, some parts of the story were forgotten, and some details may have been interpolated. As Clark has not produced notes or recordings from her interviews of Maria, we have no way of knowing what leading questions Maria may have been asked, or what Maria may have recalled that did not fit and was dropped from the record. To further complicate matters, Clark claims to have had her own near-death experience in 1970. Could this be a point of bias, coloring her perception and reporting of Maria's experience as affirmation of her own? Strobel brags that he only interviewed people who had nothing to gain and a lot to lose by talking about their near-death experiences. Clark went on to establish a near-death study foundation wrote a book about the experience that is popular in Christian circles, has a speaking tour, and been interviewed many times in all mediums. She's become quite popular and famous for a social worker. This is a theme among those who claim to have such experiences. Sometimes fame and fortune, sometimes not, but always affirmation and attention from their community. On a related note, 
The film's final NDE also comes from a book author who has appeared on programs like NBC's Today Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, 48 Hours, The Discovery Channel, and Coast to Coast AM. He only interviewed people who had nothing to gain and a lot to lose by talking about their near-death experiences. In 1985, Howard Storm suffered sudden abdominal pain, went to the hospital, and passed out from the pain while waiting for emergency surgery. I awoke from unconsciousness, and I was standing next to the bed, and I felt wonderful, better than I ever felt in my whole life. And I noticed that the, um, the big dead lump in the bed was me. Shadowy figures led Storm down a corridor for miles, yelling at him and finally biting, assaulting, and violating him. I heard a voice say, pray to God, and I thought, I don't believe in God, I don't pray. And the voice said, pray to God, kind of strong. And I thought, I don't know how to pray, I can't pray. You didn't know how to pray? As a little boy, when I sang Jesus Loved Me, I believed that there was this really cool guy named Jesus and lions and tigers and bears would come out of the closet and, to, you know, and start swarming around my bedroom in the middle of the night. You know, I would pray to Jesus and they would all flee. So when you were a little boy, you would pray to Jesus. But as an adult, you didn't know how. Also, you have a history of visceral visions or delusions that would go away when you prayed to Jesus. And what happened during your adult visceral vision? I called out to him, Jesus, please save me. And with that, a tiny light appeared in the darkness and got very bright. Out of it emerged hands and arms. And he reached down and touched me. And he brought me up against himself and put his arms around me and began to stroke my back like a mother or father would with their child. A parent would certainly put a stop to such abuse upon discovering it. But why is Storm not concerned that his parent could have prevented the abuse in the first place? In Christianity, we're often told, well, now you have to make a belief that God is there. You have to make a decision and you have to affirm God's existence and his, you know, Jesus's lordship in your life. And if you don't do that, you're going to burn in hell forever. And I just go as a father, like, would I make myself hidden to my son who I love dearly? Would I hide myself from him his entire life and then if he denies my existence or doesn't like love me enough or the right way or believe the right things about me burn him forever like no one would look at a parent and say like that's a good parent exactly now keep in mind that this internal experience of storms all happened before he was prepped for surgery while it was happening he was merely unconscious not near death in any clinical way He's basically describing a dream. His was an example of someone who had a terrorizing experience. How do you go about, like, for that one, verifying, like, its validity? Yeah, that's a good question. It is a good question. The answer is, you can't. Lee set out to provide... One authentic, corroborated near-death experience. And instead gave us four non-corroborated experiences, two of which can't really even be called near-death. None of which, obviously can be called post-death, which is what would be needed to demonstrate what happens post-death. If you're going to name your movie The Case for Heaven, I think it's reasonable to expect you to, I don't know, make a case for heaven. I want to reach a verdict in The Case for Heaven based on the evidence and not on my wishful thinking. 
or not on my preconceptions, or not on my biases or prejudices. I want to reach it based on what is the evidence. I also want to reach a verdict based on evidence and not wishful thinking, biases, prejudices, or preconceptions. I wanted evidence from the documentary, but what I got was a few assertions, a few non-compelling near-death experience claims, and about 90 minutes of emotional manipulation. If he's real, he has chosen to make himself hidden in such a way that we could plausibly say, I don't even know if God's there. If we're gonna believe that there's this eternal conscious torment that's a punishment for not believing the right things, then it's sort of like there's a gun to your head. And you know, that's one of the reasons that I just, I cannot believe in this whole structure of, of way, you know, a way of looking at God and eternity. It just doesn't work for me. And if that is true, that God is not loving. If you'd like to examine together the case Lee put forth in his previous movie, The Case for Christ, tap on the thumbnail on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.